Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast. This is Season 1, Episode Number 4, titled Crisis of the Third Century, Part 2. My name is Josh Hirschman, and we are here to continue our journey through barbarian history with our story of the Goths. We will be looking into the Goths' further raiding and terrorizing of Rome's Eastern Empire and the role in the Romans' crisis of the third century. So when we last left our Goths, they were basking in their own victory and regicide of Emperor Decius at the Battle of Abritus in 251. The new emperor, Trebonius Gallus, agreed to allow the Goths back safely into the lands uh, north of the Danube with the promise of a yearly payment to the Goths as long as they didn't attack Roman lands again. So King Keneva and his people enjoyed their victory and the peace it provided for a short period. In 253, an African-born Roman general named Emilianus is appointed governor of the province of Moesia Inferior, which is directly across from the Goths' land north of the Danube. And he's also named the general of the Danubian legions. So as the governor and general in charge of the Danube frontier, he was supposed to protect Roman lands from the Gothic raids that had plagued the empire for a decade and a half now. And part of his job in securing the border entailed paying the Goths their yearly don't invade, plunder, destroy, and enslave our people tribute. Emilianus supposedly did not pay the latter and therefore could not do the former. So Geneva is incensed by the Romans breaking their agreement with them again. And he invades Moesia Inferior again. Geneva attacks several towns and cities in Moesia Inferior and down into Thrace, which have recovered mostly from his raids two years prior, but not completely yet. And the Goths again gathered much loot, which slowed their armies down and left them vulnerable to counter-raids from small organized local Roman militias. The Roman governor of Moesia, Emilianus, who is again the one who stopped the payment of the Goths, then mobilizes an army to confront the invaders. In late 253, he's able to attack the Goths and then defeat them in battle, which significantly weakened the invading forces. He then followed them back across the Danube, up into Gothic territory, where he was able to defeat them again. Now, the Romans were able to free prisoners from the Battle of Abritus that were enslaved and brought into Gothic lands. Also brought back plunder taken from that Gothic invasion and the previous Gothic invasions couple years before. And so Emilianus and his men just saved the empire from this barbarian horde who two years prior had surprised and devastated the Romans at the Battle of Britus. So Emilianus's victory and beating back the main Gothic force would be a huge boost of morale for the Roman Empire. So remember for a second here that what had happened the last 15 years, the Goths had raided plundered and enslaved Roman lands and peoples with impunity. Twice, the Romans could not defeat the Goths and had to pay an embarrassing payment to these barbarians just so they wouldn't attack them. Also, remember, the emperor and his co-emperor's son were killed in the, at the Battle of Britus. Additionally, there had been like a thousand emperors since the crisis of the third century began 15 years ago. So many emperors that it was hard to remember some of their names. Not to mention, there were constant threats to other border regions from the Germanic tribes and Shapur I of the Sassanid Empire out east. And on top of that, the Cyprian Plague is spreading throughout the empire and indiscriminately killing millions of men, women, and children. So the pride of the Romans was devastated. The morale of its citizens was at a new low. 
basically the Romans really wanted something to go their way. They wanted something to cheer for. And Emilianus and the Danube legions had given them that. And like many times in Roman imperial history, when a Roman general achieves a significant victory, they declare themselves emperor as a way to celebrate. So Emilianus immediately leave the Goths to their own devices and heads to Italy to fight Trebonus Gallus, the real emperor, to strengthen his claim as emperor. After his victory and the death of Gallus, Emilianus and his men find out that another general named Valerian is headed their way from the Rhine River region, also abandoning his post along the Rhine, which is supposed to protect that part of the empire from German barbarian hordes of different names. So when Emilianus's men find out that the general Valerian is headed their way with a large army, they decide that all those good feelings that they were having about Emilianus uh, were about over, and they kill him. So the new Roman emperor named Valerian is in charge, and now two portions of the empire that are supposed to have legions defending the borders against barbarian hordes actually have those legions in Italy not defending the borders. Valerian chooses to stay in the West to consolidate his power and defend his old posts from other Germanic barbarian invasions in the Rhine region and abandon the Danube area. So let's go back there. As Emilianus is defeating his rival emperor and then getting himself dead by his own men, the area he was supposed to be protecting from the Goths was actually attacked by the Goths. So the Goths recovered quickly, seeing that there was a real opportunity to inflict damage and exact real wealth from the unprotected Roman lands in the east. They invade Moesia Inferior and Superior, Thrace, and down into Greece. And we'll put some maps on the Facebook page to give us an idea of what's going on here. The Goths, once again, are able to take as much wealth as they want and as is possible from these provinces. They seem not unable to make any of the larger cities, like Athens and Thessalonica, because they lack siege warfare uh, technology at this time. Which, this is curious to me, because this is going to be a problem throughout Goth history, uh, where they're going to have trouble uh, laying siege to large cities. Uh, at times, they might starve them out, but for some reason, they don't really develop the technology know-how to knock down walls, and that's something we're going to have to look into as we go on with our story. All right, but anyways, back to this part. So the Goths, through the years 253 and 254, are just devastating large portions of the Eastern Empire and its people. And at this point, it would be worthwhile to point out that Keneva and the Goths that we've been talking about the last two episodes are technically Western Goths. And this is about the time that we see historians or writers talk about two different groups of Goths. Uh, this time, maybe a little bit later for sure, we'll get to that when we get to the 290s uh, CE. But we're going to see historians talk about geographic location, so Western and Eastern Goth, based off of the Dniester River in the Pontic Steppe. And again, we'll have some, some maps to give us a visual of this on the Facebook page. Uh, we'll, we will explore this split in much more detail later, but we'd like to introduce Eastern Goths as a separate people in our story, uh, and they bring a new way to raid. So this takes us to the year 255. In 255, we see a new dimension to the Gothic Roman story, the sea. The Goths controlled much of the land north of the Danube in modern Romania, stretching east to the Pontic Steppe 
including modern-day Moldova and Ukraine, but up until the Don River. So, but on the Crimean Peninsula and the adjacent Taman Peninsula, on the other side of the Sea of Azov, laid a Roman client kingdom named the Sumerian Bosporan Kingdom. They were a Greek people who had been allied with Rome since 63 BCE. They were colonized by, by Greeks way back in probably around 700, 800, maybe 1,000 uh, BCE, and eventually allied with Rome in 63 BCE. But they did possess a strong navy and a seafaring trade-based economy. So the Romans had paid the Sumerians to keep control of the Black Sea with their strong navy. But due to some internal strife, the navy was no longer able to patrol the Black Sea. Thus, the Goths saw an opportunity. And we have to mention here that the Goths we're going to, that we're going to talk about are the Eastern-based Goths, who essentially will go on to be called the Ostrogoths. So they live between the Dnieper and the Don Rivers, just north of the Sumerians. It is these Goths that would take advantage of the instability of the Sumerians and take control of their strong navy. Then the Goths sailed to the northeast corner of the Black Sea and laid siege to a city called Pateus, which was part of a, another Roman client kingdom named Colchis. This is modern-day Georgia. So Roman troops that were garrisoned in the city were led by a man named Successianus, and were able to hold out and force the Goths back to their bases with nothing uh, in their ship's holes. The next year, though, the Goths came back and are this time able to take the city. The Roman legions were recalled by Valerian to use in Syria against the Sassanids, so they were much less defended in the city. So the Goths then attacked and plundered the city of Trebizond on the northeast kind of coast of modern-day Turkey. So this group of Goths went back to Crimea with their ships full of slaves, plunder, and booty from parts of Anatolia and eastern Black Sea regions. So on a bit of a side, uh, the Goths and their language would remain in Crimea uh, for basically 1,600 more years. Uh, and uh, again, this is a bit of a side, but the Gothic language survives in Crimea until the mid to late 1800s, which we'll get to a little bit later on uh, when it finally does go extinct. All right, so back to our story. In 257, the raiding season is going to become even more lucrative for the Goths. They set sail from the rivers west of Crimea, which means these are probably Goths that we'll geographically name Western. Uh, and King Kneva is going to be involved in the future Visigoths, and they head towards Constantinople. So they are said to have a large fleet of which many were fishing boats and sailed past Constantinople to land on the beach by Chalcedon. Now, Chalcedon, which will become famous later on for the religious council that was there in the mid-5th century, but today is part of the Asian side of Istanbul. The Roman garrison ran away in the face of the large Gothic army, and the looting and sacking was on after that. The Goths would take Nicomedia, Nicaea, Cius, Apamea, and Prusa, all larger wealthy cities in the northwest of modern Anatolia. And as the fighting season died down, the Goths sailed back to the base west of Crimea and enjoyed their loot. They may seem surprised that the Goths turned to the sea to conduct their raids on Roman lands. And I was too, but there's a good reason for this. The Roman provinces around the Danube, like Moesia, uh, Inferior, Superior, Pannonia, Thrace, they'd all been subject to all these raids 
for all of these years. So for the better part of a decade now, with very little downtime, the Goths had been raiding this land. So the Goths could never create long sustained supply lines to support their army, so they had to live off the land. So they couldn't keep raiding the land that they had the previous season because there was nothing left for them to eat and to feed their horses and to continue moving as a raiding army. Now, they did get some help, though, from the local population, which some of the local Christians would support the armies at times like these during, during raids. This may be a surprise to many of us, but when you think about being a Christian in the mid-3rd century Roman Empire, they would be incentivized for the Roman pagan hierarchy to have problems. The minority Christians could find it advantageous to help those who would fight the pagan rulers of Rome. So not to mention that I'm sure the Goths would choose to spare those communities that would help them, uh, including Christians. So additionally, the rural population uh, would, would help the Goths in the raids because the people in rural areas did not seem to share a common cause with the Roman urban elite. And this theme is something that applies to all countries through all time periods. And as we've seen in recent years here in the United States, this is definitely something that's happening still where rural and urban is a huge divide and politically, socially, culturally. Okay. So back to the third century CE, the Goths who responded to the breakup of the previous treaty with the Romans again, decided to use the black sea as a new route to raid Roman lands, as opposed to trying to find that help from local populations on lands that have already been ravaged by years and years of plundering. One thing we want to point out at this time is there's an interesting piece of artwork that comes from this time period or that is about this time period that depicts the types of battles the Goths and Romans would be waging against each other. The Ludovosi battle sarcophagus dates from the 250s and depicts Romans and Goths in a variety of scenes. The main figure, presumably the Roman buried in the sarcophagus, sits on a horse with a regal appearance and this X on his forehead. Now, the X could be a reference to the god Mithra, which was a religion that many in the Roman military adhered to from like the first to the fourth centuries. The rest depicts Goth and Romans fighting, Goths giving children to Romans, probably as part of a peace guarantee, uh, which was common at the time. Goth are showing their subservience to Roman soldiers and uh, one goth has been stabbed with a weapon and there's many other things going on. So this piece is made of white marble with kind of like black streaks and was found in Rome in the 1600s. It can be viewed today as part of the National Museum of Rome. Now the amount of detail in this just chaotic scene of this piece is amazing. Uh, I posted an image of the piece on Facebook page so everyone can check it out. Take a couple minutes to look at it and you're going to find all kinds of things going on uh, that I didn't go over here, but it is remarkable. So take a couple minutes to check that out. So getting back to our story. Now the next decade holds more piratical kind of raids throughout the Black Sea region with raids throughout the coastal regions and into the hinterlands. And it's during this time, either in raids in 264, 267, that some Cappadocian Christians are taken back as slaves to Gothic lands west of the Nister River. And these Christians would eventually help lead to the Christianization of the pagan Goths, especially the Western Goths at this time. 
Through a couple of generations, these Christians will give birth to a man named Euphilus, and he'll become the leader of the Christian conversion effort and a Christian bishop of the Goths and primarily be given credit for their conversion. So we'll come back to Euphilus in episodes later on and talk about the Christianity and Christianization of the Goths. With the raiding going on in the 250s and 260s, the Goths are becoming richer and stronger, and the Romans are becoming weaker, and the crisis of the 3rd century continues to plague them. And so we're going to stop here this week, because we're going to pick up next week with the largest Gothic raid to date, and the eventual defeat of the Goths, and the finalization of the crisis of the 3rd century, where we thought Rome might fall, but they are saved and pulled out, and the temporary downfall of the Goths will be a part of that story. So the materials that we used for information this week include The Goths by Peter Heather, Rome's Gothic Wars by Michael Kulikowski, History of the Goths by Herwig Wolfram. And again, this is a work in progress. So hopefully you are enjoying the show. If you do, please leave a review. Those good reviews help other people find it. Subscribe. If you're interested in following along with this journey some more and please leave some feedback on Twitter at history of the barbarians or on Facebook, check out those images that we posted for those maps and thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Thanks.